The other like massive milestone marker in our company's history line, getting through COVID in May, once the lockdown started easing up a little bit, we shut out like a cannon. I mean, it was triple digit year on year growth, unlike anything we had ever seen before. And normally our seasonality is like a bell curve over the course of a year. It didn't stop. It went all the way through the year and it carried into 2021. And I think, you know, again, like I could talk an hour about this. I think it's just the acceleration of this trend we were seeing, which is people reawakening to the awesomeness of the outdoors, whether it's through a global pandemic or whatever, it hasn't stopped. You know, there's still this like big zeitgeist trend going on and we want to be here to ride it. Welcome to the International Expansion Podcast. My name is Ramsey Pryor, and I spent the past five years taking one of Silicon Valley's fastest growing startups into new markets all around the world as head of international expansion and sales. Tech companies are able to expand overseas faster than ever before, but there's quite a lot that goes into getting it right, and each new market has its own unique and fascinating set of quirks and challenges. The best way to prepare is to learn from people who have been there before. So I started this podcast to gather the best practices from tech's most admired startups. We cover their successes and the things they got right, as well as their mistakes and learnings, all so that you can benefit from their hindsight as you take your company global. Thanks for listening. And if you or your company is looking for guidance on your expansion journey, or if you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. This episode is brought to you by Globalization Partners. Many people assume that in order to enter a new country, you have to set up a new entity for your company, which can mean engaging in months of filings, years of investment obligations, legal fees, and a boatload of aspirin for all those headaches. That's a really heavy burden, especially if you're only hiring a few employees or if you're still testing a particular market. Globalization Partners invented a better way of hiring talent in other countries back in 2012 that allows you to focus on hiring the talent you need and growing your company while they take care of the employment details. They provide locally compliant employee contracts, manage payroll, pensions, benefits, and a lot more as part of the package. And they cover 187 countries and 180 currencies. They offer all of this through their proprietary technology platform and provide experts you can call on when tricky situations come up anywhere in the world. And take it from me, these situations do come up frequently. And when they do, you want the most experienced people and the best technology behind you. For more information, visit globalizationpartners.com and choose the country you'd like to learn more about. Welcome to this episode of the International Expansion Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Ron Schneiderman, CEO of AllTrails. Many of the folks listening know AllTrails is the outdoor app that helps you find the perfect activity based on what you're up for, whether that's by activity type, hiking, biking, trail running, camping, et cetera, or by feature, and you can filter for cool things like waterfalls, dog-friendly trails, or amazing views, or by your location. And once you're there, you can take advantage of really cool maps to keep you on the trail and avoid getting lost, even if you're out of cell service. All Trails has been around since 2010 and now hosts over 200,000 trail guides in 190 countries across all seven continents and has over 1 million premium subscribers worldwide. This isn't Ron's first expedition as an outdoor technology leader. He co-founded Liftopia and built and ran the world's leading ski lift ticket booking tool for eight years. And that was backed by all-star investors like Mark Benioff, Chris Saka, First Round Capital. And Ron has a broad general management skill set and deep experience leading marketing, business development, and growth at some of the largest global tech companies. Ron, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. So Ron, many people out there are probably already familiar with All Trails, the brand, the app, but I'm hoping you could start by telling us what the company looked like when you joined. And I think that was about six years ago and where you've taken things since that time. And in particular, since you took over the CEO role back in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. So I am not the founder of All Trails. It was started in 2010 by this guy, Russell Cook. And I give Russell all the credit in the world because it was actually a crowded space. The idea of kind of consolidating trail guides, bringing them online, wasn't a new... It was from Web 1.0. They're legacy companies from the 90s that were doing it. But Russell threw his hat into the ring. It started as a side project. He's a serial entrepreneur. And to his credit, he built a really amazing SEO engine. right? And this was back when the vast majority of usage was coming on desktop computers. And right around 2015, he got an opportunity to go be SVP of operations at Postmates and he wanted to hand it over, right? He didn't want to turn off the lights. It was just starting to get traction. They had just released their mobile apps. Along with the mobile app was annual subscription products. So for the first several years, they were kind of searching for product market fit. Product channel fit was really clear. It was SEO, but product market fit, how do we monetize this? Dabbled with media models partnerships, things like that, and felt like there was a really strong signal there with their newly launched mobile app and the annual subscription business for Alltrails Pro. So yeah, I you know I was working at Yelp at the time as head of growth. Yelp was my rebound playing after Liftopia, right? Liftopia, that was my baby. You know, it was my first startup. You're so connected to your first startup. You know, I was there for almost nine years. And after that kind of ran its course. I spent six months trying to figure out who am I, right? And what's next? Am I a serial entrepreneur? Am I a zero to one guy? And you know, this pressure to start a new startup, is this intrinsic? Is it extrinsic? Like, where is this coming from? And what I ultimately saw is like, I want to do the exact opposite for a little bit. Like, I do not want the weight of payroll on my shoulders. I do not want the problem with a startup, obviously, like everyone's judging you all the time, right? Like constantly, everyone feels this compulsion to offer unsolicited advice of why it will never work. Mm-hmm. And you get thick skin, but it's still, you know, it stings. And so it's like, I want none of that. I want a break. So I went to Yelp. It was great. We were trying to build an open table competitor internally. It was a lot of fun, <laughs> but it was big and it was slow and it was bureaucratic. And I realized, you know, several months in, like, this isn't me. I miss small. I miss fast. I love fast. I love momentum and velocity. Those like Two of my favorite things. I love building. I love hyper growth. And this opportunity just presented itself at the right time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just funny how life kind of works like that. And so I jumped on it. And so All Trails was, when I came in, it was a six person company. We maybe had cumulatively, you know, since 2010, maybe a million registered users. Wow. Very few of them were active. And then maybe 10 to 20,000 pro subscribers at the time. So it was tiny, right? So I came in as CMO and COO. I wasn't confident enough in my abilities to come in as CEO. I was like, I don't want that, but I would be happy to lead growth. And if I'm going to lead growth, I also want to be able to manage the operations around me. That was a less a hard lesson learned from Yelp. The challenge with leading growth often is you don't have dedicated teams. You don't have control over the levers that you need to succeed. So I was like, if I'm going to do growth as a CMO, I need operations too. So got that. And when I started there, I'd been around for five years. So I didn't want to just come in and flip the table over. It wasn't like... Mm-hmm. It wasn't like that. you know. I kind of wanted to tread lightly and really figure out what we had here. And so I spent the first three months just getting my hands on every piece of quantitative data and qualitative data that I could find. Right. So going deep on the analytics and shoring up the analytics, finding the gaps there. Almost like more interestingly was going through 
every app store review that had ever been written, every Reddit post that had ever been written, every blog post threaded comments about mm-hmm. us and just anything I could find online. It was really illuminating because like, there's a couple of themes that jumped out. One was the sheer amount of kind of anger and outrage and disappointment that was being thrown at us across the web, right? Like the, the number of times I read these comments like, hey, all trails, you told me this trail was dog friendly and I got a $400 ticket from the ranger, you know, Watch. right? Or like, hey, all trails, you told me that there was a trailhead here and I spent eight hours driving around spooky forest surface roads and they were so mad. And at first it was like, what did I get myself into? I made a terrible mistake. But after thinking about it more, what I realized is, you know what, like this is actually a gift, right? If people were apathetic to this level of getting things wrong, that would be problematic. That's so hard to turn around. But the fact that people were so upset meant that we had just profoundly let them down. And at the same time, there wasn't a replacement in the marketplace satisfying this need for us. And so we needed a course correct hard and fast. We can turn this into a positive. And that was actually like really exciting, as weird as that might sound. The other thing that was really apparent really quickly was, you know, Altrails kind of started geared heavily towards search and rescue and like the through hiker crowd, you know, people who do the Pacific Crest Trail for four months at a time, kind of jockeying for space in that community. Mm. And after doing Liftopia in the ski space for almost nine years, like you learn quickly that when you try and cater to the core, that is no way to grow a business because the hardcore users all have these crazy edge cases right? From a product perspective, they all want to pull it in a different direction that doesn't scale. And none of them want to pay you a dime because they're all living out of their van, like doing the dirtbag life. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was also like quick, like, okay, hard pivot. <laughs> I use my wife as my straw man all the time, even to this day, five, almost six years. And <laughs> she's still the straw man in my head, which is, you know, she loves going outside when she's with me. But if I'm not there, she doesn't have the confidence to take our three kids or our dog on a trail run, right? Mm-hmm. She loves children, but like she won't do it. So how can technology help, right? And that's always been really the question in the back of my mind. How can we instill confidence? How can we tear down these barriers to entry? Really trying to rebuild the platform and the community through this lens of inclusivity and accessibility and and systematically tearing down the barriers globally that keep people from spending time outside. That's such a fascinating story. And you mentioned a couple of things that I would have thought were a little bit counter to conventional wisdom, veering off the course of trying to please your hardest core users. You know, you had to recognize that maybe that wasn't what was going to make a business out of you. But some people would have said, if you can make those really hardcore users happy, all good things will follow. But it seems like you had to change who you were really building the service for. Did you guys feel any consequence for alienating or did you alienate those hardest core users? Did they end up coming around to you later on? Some of them left and some of them were very outspoken as they were leaving. And that, mm-hmm. that happens, right? I mean, again, we were already so used to kind of the noise and the static out there. It really felt we were small, which helped, right? Like, again, we didn't have a huge footprint. So it, it was less consequential than trying to do this, for example, at Yelp and do a huge pivot with 140 million users, right? Like... It wasn't that bad. Even if we had to do a full teardown, which actually we ended up basically doing, Mm -hmm. again, it was an opportunity given what we were seeing, the gap in the marketplace. And so we, it felt like we had time. It felt like we could do this one right, kind of rip the bandaid off. Now, what's interesting, we've ended up like ripping the bandaid off several subsequent times, you know, over our company's trajectory. But yeah, I, I don't know. I've seen a lot of companies that fall, you almost fall, you're scared of your users, right? And that's no way to build, especially if your vision, like if you're really being intellectually honest and yep. 
trying to project out if your vision is incongruent with your current customer base. It's a tricky place to be. And some people keep trying to stay the course and jam it in and make it work. And I think for us, we were just, you know, maybe it's because there was a changing of a guard. I, you know, came in and I was like, you know, this isn't, I got nothing to lose here. You know, so it kind of emboldens you a little bit. Very interesting. So when you took over, there were six people. You were coming in as CMO, COO, not sure if you really wanted to be CEO. A lot has changed since that time. Can you fill us in or give us some stats on where the company is today, just so we can see how much it's grown? How many employees? Where's your team located? Those types of stats. Yeah, sure. I'll I'll give you it through the lens of a quick company history too. So one of the things we really wanted to do was grow this sustainably, not take third-party capital. So my predecessor had done like a, I think a three million dollar seed round in 2012 or 2013, and we were still kind of like drafting off of that. And and again, all of the different monetization feelers that were out there. And so you know we stayed super lean. 2016 was just a straight a hardcore fix it year. We we're just all grinding, just grinding. It was I keep calling it the bad old days internally, but it was <laughs> it was a grind, right? We were so short staffed. We would try and basically attack a funnel metric, one metric per quarter, like a different area of the funnel each quarter. So, all right, we're going to tackle signups. We'll tackle pro conversion. We'll tackle churn. We'll tackle activation. It was at that kind of cadence. It was slow. It was slow. But we we're also super lean, right? And so our burn was nothing. I took a you know massive pay cut to come here. Like long, believe in the long term vision. Mm-hmm. We all did. By 2017, we we're able to hit profitability, right? And that's that's actually a huge point of pride. We're not like a traditional, I guess, Silicon Valley company, right? Like, you know, we stayed lean, we stayed focused, we got to profitability, and we've stayed there, and we haven't had to take primary capital since then. Congrats! That's really refreshing to hear. Yeah. Honestly, I, I know, right? What a what a crazy idea! In 2018, so the original agreement with Russell when when we took over was to grow it and sell it, and so 2016, 2017 was the fix it job. 2018, you know, end of 2017 we hit profitability. 2018 was really like a breakout year for mm-hmm. us. And we got an inbound offer from one of the big tech companies. They wanted to buy us. And so that started the process. And that was fascinating. Use your imagination and, and picture which companies we were talking to, right? A really cool cross-section of use cases out there. Right. But the pervading sense that I couldn't shake and a bunch of people within all trails couldn't shake was just like, we're we're just getting started here. Like the last thing I want to do is go be an absorbed by mega tech co and come <laughs> go be like what middle management there, you know, like that's not fun. This is fun, right? Like this is a unique opportunity. I had just come out of Yelp. The last thing I want to do is, and I love Yelp, but the last thing I want to do is go back into like a big publicly traded, you know, corporation and just be a cog. And so it kind of shaped who we wanted to partner with, right? And this was great because we had leverage. I've never had leverage like this before because we were profitable and we didn't need to sell. It was if we needed to punt it another year or two or five, like it's all good. But we found the right partner and that was Spectrum Equity. And so they're a growth equity fund based here in San Francisco. Headspace is one of our sister companies, which is awesome. They had GoodRx before GoodRx went public. SurveyMonkey for like 10 years before they went public. Really cool community, right? And they're very big on this notion of community and putting founders in touch or executives in touch with each other and knowledge sharing and stuff. So we jumped at that opportunity. And that was really a big turning point for us, right? Because that was suddenly like, all right, you know, they bought us in 2018. You can see this on TechCrunch, so it's nothing. I'm not sharing anything the secret. They bought us, you know, 80 million bucks. We were a 12 person company at the time, and they saw the potential, though, you know, and and they were really the first ones to push on like, you guys should think bigger. Like this is, you know, we can be a global company here. I think this is going to be a winner take all space, like. Let's let's make a play. Let's do this. And so 
That was great. That really was like a huge okay. inflection point, like a milestone marker in all trails history line in 2019. So actually getting on topic to your podcast here. <laughs> in 2019, we translated the platform into French, German, and Spanish, right? We wanted to like start like we knew tons of headroom in the US and North America. But again, we wanted to be a global company. We want to be a global brand. So let's start going down that path. So we started with translations. We started building up the team. We actually bought three companies in 2019. One was um, trails.com. This legacy, you know, again, they're from the 90s in our space. You know, that was an interesting one. And then we bought a company in the UK, kind of like a mini all trails mm -hmm. uh, called iFootpath. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then we bought a German company called GPSs. I thought that was going to be called Gypsies. I, I like it. It is called Gypsies. I always feel bad calling it. So internally, where I was like, it's GPSs. But yeah, you talk to them in Germany and they call it Gypsies. And, you know, it was interesting, right? Because at the time, I'll tell you this, the investment thesis has changed since going through those three acquisitions. In 2016, we actually bought a company too. We bought every trail from TripAdvisor. That was a step function for us. That really did change the trajectory. These other three, you know, they're interesting, but it got to the point where, again, like there's a big opportunity cost and a big distraction whenever you're trying to integrate users, integrate new functionality, everything else. But I do think it ultimately helped accelerate our European and UK trajectory, which mm -hmm. is great. But if I'm being honest with you, I don't have a ton of appetite to do that again anytime soon either because <laughs> I'd rather build, right? So right around that time too, we kind of collectively decided the old CEO wanted to move on. And so Spectrum Equity approached me like, hey, would you be interested in taking the CEO role? I was like, you know, here's the thing you need to know about. I'm a growth guy. I glaze over when it's like deep in the weeds of finance, when we're modeling, mm -hmm. PLs and balance sheets, like that's not my skill set. And I was very transparent about that. And they're like, don't worry about that. That's what we're here to do, right? Like, we've got your back on that. And, I, and thankfully, I had a, a world class, like, best CFO um, to also take over some of that burden. So they had no qualms about that. And it was mostly just gremlins in my own head preventing me from having done it. And it was one of those <laughs> things where, like, six months in, I was like, this. This is nowhere near as hard as I thought it would be. Not saying it's not, you know, not, but it, it was nowhere near as scary, I guess. And I was like, I should have done this a long time ago. So that was 2019, end of 2019, 2020, COVID hit, right? And that was crazy. Mm -hmm. Everything ground to a halt in mid March, right? Like, who declares global pandemic? No one's hiking, no one's going mountain biking, right? People are scared your dog is going to give you COVID. Like, people don't know if the mm -hmm. air is toxic, right? Like, it was. And I know I'm not the only business here or any of other listeners probably had the exact same experience where you just see like your entire machine, like the entire thing, the assembly line, whatever, like it ground to a halt overnight. It was insanity. And there was like a couple of weeks, like figuring it out. And then April, the lockdown started. Mm -hmm. And we're just like, okay, okay, let's regroup. Let's catch our breath. Let's be sane and sober here, right? Like this, whatever, whatever's going on right now is short term. There's no way, you know, especially like being an American, whatever. It's like, there's no way that like the United States is going to tolerate an extended mm -hmm. lockdown. <laughs> it, you know, it's like freedom. And so it's like, okay, however long this is going to be, it will pass. We will start opening up. And when that does happen, you and I were talking, I have three kids. We had already canceled all of our summer plans. We were canceling our summer camps. Everything was like, we're going to be stuck with our three kids inside. The only respite people are going to have from all this insanity is going to be on the trail. And thankfully, like throughout the course of, of April, a lot of the governors and different leaders in charge were declaring hiking an essential activity. Yep. Right. And like that was, it was like, okay, all right. You know what, guys? Like, I know things are slow right now, 
but eventually we will get out of our houses again. And when we do that, this is going to be our moment. Like our why is we were built for this. Like our, this is our moment. This is our why here is to help people get outside for physical health, for mental health, for emotional health, to give them a sense of normalcy, right? And we need to be prepared for that. And so we you know, had some very interesting conversations with the board and they were super supportive of this too. We're like, while everyone else is kind of like getting pummeled by the surf, we were swimming through and we're like, we're going to hire like crazy. Like we are going to invest right now and go all in on expanding the team so we can seize this opportunity, manufacture even more momentum. So while all these companies around us, these amazing A-list companies around us were casting off talent, we were just like grabbing them, grabbing people that you know we wouldn't have access to a year ago. And so we went into 2020 with 28 employees, right? 28 employees. By the end of 2020, we're at 56. Today, we're almost at 100. Holy cow. Like it's really, like I said earlier, like I'm a big momentum guy, like momentum begets momentum. And I think for startups or or companies like, like ours, momentum is the lifeblood, right? You have to do everything you can to just keep building that momentum. As soon as you lose it, it's so hard to regain it. And so... Again, like we were, we seized it, right? We we, so we did it with headcount. We started investing even more in paid acquisition. We increased the frequency of our communication. We did a huge PR blitz over the summer. Just again, like you know, we wanted to be tied to that messaging of this is the summer of hiking, right? This is going to be it. This is the summer of hiking. That's what we declared it internally, and we wanted to tell people how to do it safely, how to do it responsibly, and be a... So anytime anyone thought about hiking, just be tied to that moment, right? Like really elevate the brand. Again, the other like massive milestone marker in our company's history line, getting through COVID in May, once the lockdown started easing up a little bit, we shut out like a cannon. I mean, it was triple digit year on year growth, unlike anything we had ever seen before. And normally our seasonality is like a bell curve over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. It didn't stop. It went all the way through the year and it carried into 2021. And I think, you know, again, like I could talk an hour about this. I think it's just the acceleration of this trend we were seeing, which is people reawakening to the awesomeness of the outdoors, whether it's through a global pandemic or whatever, it hasn't stopped. You know, there's still this like big zeitgeist trend going on and we want to be here to ride it. I've noticed that myself. We're big hikers and where I usually go, there was maybe three or four cars pre-pandemic where I would park. And... I remember May or so, you know, the first year when we got into last May, there was no parking and then they were building additional parking lots. And then it felt more dangerous to be on a trail than, uh, you know, sort of walking down your street because there's so many people, but it's, I think it's been fantastic. It's gotten us all through this with as much mental sanity intact as you can have. And, uh, hopefully did a lot of good things for people's physical health and fitness, I've been dying to talk to you about this because this is one of those things, the few things that you could do, you know, for the last year and change. And I just, you know, what was it like for the people working? You guys are going through 4X growth in a short amount of time. The world's locked down, but, you know, you guys are growing and acquiring talent. What did it feel like internally at the company with those kind of dichotomy going on, you know, where there's lockdowns, but your business is booming? Yeah, you got to start by acknowledging, and we were very honest internally about this that we were lucky. Our why was aligned with this. We didn't have sales reps out in the field. We didn't have supply chain issues. You know, there were so many great companies that just got punched in the nose and no fault of their own, and and went out of business. They didn't survive, right? So let's start with the fact that we were just lucky (laughs) to start. It was tricky, right? I mean, there is no guilt on our side about growing through the pandemic. Again, rec- acknowledging we're lucky, but 
there was so much, I guess, just collective joy and satisfaction or contentment that we're helping people. And it, and it was it was my therapy getting outside for the first time ever because we weren't shuttling our kids around like from sport to birthday party to play date or whatever. Like there was nothing to do. We would go on these family hikes every weekend. And you see the change in energy with the kids, like they stop fighting. They're mm-hmm. just, there's this lightness and, and this return to normalcy. And so like, I knew it for myself. I would hear it from my loved ones, how much, again, like, like you said, sanity, how much, I don't know, like it was just the one place they felt kind of normal and safe, just like a normal person again, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know. Like, again, like I, there's the physical part, the physical health part with gyms being closed and all that. I got an, I'm on mountain bike all the time, going for trail runs, but I think even more so for a lot of people was the mental health and emotional health relief that they were able to get. You know, churches were closed or synagogues were closed, right? Like Mm -hmm. they can't even go to play. Like you go, it's all encompassing outside. And I think there are very few places that could do that, right? So I felt a lot of pride that we're able in our small way, in our small way to help people through the pandemic. You know, that felt good. And that was a motivator to do more faster, right? Because it's just like, the bigger we get, you know, the stronger we get, the more good we're able to do in the universe. And on top of that, we're also, we're 1% for the planet members. Very proud, very proud supporter of them. The bigger we get, the more we're able to donate, you know, like the more good we're able to kind of try and collectively create. And so like, again, there was a lot of, I don't know, it's a good intrinsic motivator, I think for everybody on the team, including all the, you know, one of the things that came from COVID that I noticed a lot, I still do all of the recruiting. I, I've hired, I, I want to be involved in the interview process with everyone at this company and I have been thus far. You know, there's a lot of people coming from big tech companies that had a lot of heartburn mm-hmm. about how they're using their skills and their talent and their superpowers, whether they're using it for good or for evil, you know, and not to be that dramatic, but you know, there's... Sure. There's a lot of really smart people working on like things that aren't necessarily the best thing in the world for humanity. And I think in COVID, a lot of people were really reconsidering a lot of life choices and we had time and space to think. And so again, the influx of talent wanting to come work with us on something that they personally use and found a value in and saw the good in, it was great. Like it really helped us compete. It's ruthless out here. You know, I don't know how many listeners are Silicon Valley based companies. It is ruthless out here trying to find tech talent. And for us, we are a mission driven company. And so, you know, even when we find amazing tech talent, if they're not keyed into our mission, it's not a good hire. We won't hire them. So we have to be like extra selective here. And so being able to get that many amazing people who are knocking on our door to come work here, it was a game changer. It really was a game changer. And it's held thus far. It's one of those like virtuous cycle things, you know? I've spoken with other companies that have had a massive boom as a result, as a direct result of all the changes from the pandemic. And you mentioned some of the things that happened. Of course, your team's going to grow. I imagine you had acceleration in the product as well. Did you guys learn things that would have taken you years to figure out in a shorter amount of time product-wise during this period? I think there's never enough product development throughput. (laughs) (laughs) Even though our company is almost like four times bigger. So like, we need to do more faster. Mm -hmm. I wish that there was like some like incredibly high leverage product thing out there. We learned a lot from a messaging standpoint. We learned a lot from a communication standpoint, from a community standpoint. And then we had to build some like purpose-driven features specific to a global pandemic. For example, like in some of our trail recommendation engines doing trails less travel, right? Mm -hmm. And putting it front and center because of this exact issue. We knew we were directly contributing to increased trail traffic. So ramping up our education, we have a wonderful partnership in place with Leave No Trace. And it's kind of like recognizing like, all right, you know, if we're going to be a bigger player in the space, we have a responsibility. We need to get in front of that. We need to do our part. 
Another really interesting one too has been around inclusivity, mm-hmm. right? We have some really great marketing partnerships with some of the you know big brands in the space and, and kind of collectively having the conversation like, look, all of the stock imagery and all of the modeling imagery that you guys are going out and doing, it's all fit white people in their 20s. If we want more people in the tent, like we got to portray them, like we got to let people see that they're welcome here. And so that, you know, that's an ongoing thing. And obviously, like we are just one small cog in that process, but there, it is nice seeing like a big sea change there. Those, I think, are the biggest things that jumped out at us last year. Very cool. And Ron, I know many companies go global and go global faster than ever. Very few companies have any presence on seven continents. So you guys, by nature, are not only going to need to be everywhere, but you're also going to need to be off the beaten trail. You're going to need to be in places that other companies don't even think about. So I was really curious to talk to you about how do you think about covering the globe when covering the globe is literally the most remote corners and nooks and crannies. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think trails are at the heartbeat of all trails. Big, big surprise, right? <laughs> um, and and a lot of our a lot of our energy over the years. And I think what makes us unique has been around this kind of trail curation process, right? And I think that differentiates all trails from some other folks in the space. Like, it's pretty easy to just dump unstructured user recordings out there and let people kind of sort through it. But there's a lot of challenges with that, you know, whether it's private property, whether this is safe or not, is it kid-friendly, is it dog-friendly, what activities can you do? You know, there's... So so one of the things we just went back when I was talking about kind of like the, the complete rejiggering of the platform in, in 2015 and 2016 was kind of putting in place like this guideline, all right, any trail that's on all trails needs to have this specific metadata before it can go live. It has to have a start point, it has to have an end point, it has to have a red line on a map that you can follow along. It has to have a difficulty level, an elevation gain, what activities you can do, what you're going to see on it, and accessibility for kids or dogs or wheelchair, things like that. And then UGC kind of supplements the rest. And so for us, as we're thinking about going into new markets, we're not like a traditional marketplace. So we don't have to worry about the balance between supply and demand. We can basically always start with supply. And in our case, supply Mm -hmm. is our trail content, right? So we can get in front of it easily. And there's, you know, again, this is like the part of what makes all trails. All trails is how we do new trail creation. There's sort of like our users add trails and there's a whole vetting process and machine learning layer and everything else. But we also have a dedicated team that's probably like 40 something people deep at this point, adding new trails through our first party data and third party data and all of the proprietary tools that we built out. But ultimately, like you're kind of alluding to, you know, we, we want to be like a ways for the outdoors. We want to have every single trail on the globe in our system. When I started at All Trails, we had to tear down our data. Mm-hmm. And so we probably had like five or 6,000 trails in early 2016 that were like good and live on the site. Today, we're, we're at like 250,000. We're marching towards 300,000 by the end of this year. There's a question what the denominator ultimately is and how, that, how you calculate that per country. But we can start with the most popular ones or we can start on density near urban centers. So as we do international expansion, Again, it all starts with the trails. It all starts with the trails. There's sort of like a critical mass we aim for. And then we start focusing on the demand side. Got it. So you go into a new region, say Europe, you'd spent some time making acquisitions there. Obviously, that was your first regions that you localized for. You mentioned French, German, and Spanish. Was that the idea? Was in order to go into Europe, we need these languages, we need these, this critical mass. Did you start there? Or how did you pick your way around the globe or prioritize the different macro regions? Yeah, we started... I mean, this started well before 2019 when we translated the platform. So we were starting in English. And so really, we we're starting 
thinking through, you know, the, the majority of our user base was in North America. So when our North American users travel abroad anywhere, where are the trails that we need to have, whether it's Thailand or France or Chile, you know, let's have those trails, right? Like there's kind of those core big name, the name trails, the ones everyone knows and expects. You got to have those if you want to pass the sniff test. But the way we look at it is uh, international expansion really needs to be about locals searching for local content. And that's a lot different. People coming to the United States are going to go to the Grand Canyon, but most people in Arizona aren't going to do the Grand Canyon, you know, on the weekend, right? Like it's a, it's a different mindset. So sort of the complexion of the trails changes, you know, and that's something we've learned a lot, I'd say over the last couple of years is like, what are the, the trail attributes that we need? Average trail length, activity types, proximity to urban centers, you know, we've been building up the playbook, but we did, we started in English, see how far we can take it. And even in Europe, there's plenty of English speakers there. And so we were able to get some, a little bit of traction, but really after we translated the platform, we almost had to start from scratch from the trail side. And again, it's like, okay, this isn't good enough yet. This isn't good enough. People in Paris, people in Lyon, like they're not finding the trails that they need for them. So let's build that trail club. And then you put, you know, you put metrics in place, you put you, a growth plan in place, starting with trails. And then the, what, I'll tell you this, one of, the, one of the big things I've learned since 2019 is the difference between translations and localization. And I'm sure I'm not the first guest to say that exact phrase. No, but this is different every time and there's so many good learnings. So what did that mean for you guys? What was the difference between translating and localizing? So let's even just use the UK as an example. We thought we were nailing it. You know, you just add an extra U in the words here and there. So it's O-U instead of an L, right? Like <laughs> nailed it. But there's stuff like dog friendly, right? So in the States, we built up this huge collection of dog friendly. This data set doesn't exist anywhere. Dog friendly, dogs on leash, dogs offline. And so we wanted to do the same in the UK. And after doing that, you know, sometimes you put stuff out there and the users have to, you know, like, actually, this is not dog friendly. Great. You know, we can close the loop on that quickly. What we found in the UK is like, all the trails are dog friendly. You're allowed to bring dogs everywhere. What really defines the level of dog friendliness, though, is the gate type. Mm -hmm. And so there's these different gates. And it's like, you said, so this is like back to the bad old days. Like you said, this trail was dog friendly, <laughs> but I had to carry my 120 pound dog over the fence oh, no. at this junction. Right? I was like, oh my gosh, like we did this wrong. You know, in the United States, we have a lot of like bird watching is a very, very popular attribute here. In Germany, they're like, what? Why are you putting bird watching on? Every trail is a bird watching trail. This is so dumb, right? <laughs> and it's just like, I had no idea. I had no clue. And that's just, you know, from the attribute perspective, there's like for us, localization is also, you know, making sure in Europe, our trails, because they all have a start and end point, start near a train station, start near public transportation, like this American centric thinking that everyone has a car and will just drive to the trailhead does not apply across the world. And so rethinking that, rethinking, you know, a lot of our pro features, when you don't have a cell phone connection, but in Europe, the cellular coverage is much better than here. And so like, okay, how do we need to adapt our product set and feature set to drive value so people would be willing to pay for our subscription offering? There's crazy... Like, what do you call the Grand Canyon in Spanish? If you're a Spanish user, are you looking for the Grand Canyon or are you looking for a Canyon Grande mm -hmm. or whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's all of that. And then on top of that, we have like 50 million reviews, 20, you know, some insane number of like user reviews. And like, we're not going to manually translate that. And so again, really thinking through like, okay, what are we going to take the time to manually translate? And then what are we going to lean on machine learning? Because obviously, like we've all seen it. I don't even speak any other languages, but I can tell 
when a website has just been machine translated, it looks mm-hmm. off. And so if we're trying to position ourselves as, you know, buy locals for locals, locals searching for local content, we can't afford to miss on that. And so fine tuning our human ops and processes around that, we were leaning on third party translation plus machine translation. And instead we had to start building out a multilingual team internally. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. Yeah, there's two things there. I'd love to go a little deeper on. You mentioned one thing, which is you're getting a lot of feedback and you're getting angry feedback at the beginning, but you're getting kind of regional specific feedback as you go into markets. What are the sources for those signals? Is it reviews? Is it more something more structured? How do you get that feedback and make sure you're listening to the right things and making the right changes. Yeah. Well, I mean, so we, we've built into the product a lot of feedback loops. That, you know, one of the challenges we have with trails is they're so fluid. They change because of erosion, flooding, fire, maintenance, land development. You know, there's a million reasons why they change from, you know, even from season to season, they change, right? And so we knew that like, and, and I think that's one of the things that makes all trails kind of great is because we're able to adapt so quickly based off of on the ground intelligence and feedback. And so we have feedback loops built directly into the product. And that accounts for a huge percent. When we do some cool stuff, again, with third-party data, machine learning, and there's some interesting things there too. But you know, there's still leakage into the app store. And obviously, like that's a bummer when it's like, you know, we we a lot of people do email customer support. Maybe they're pissed, whatever. But we do still, I still read every single app store review that we get. And just, you know, try and figure out like, where are we missing the mark? It comes in all a bunch of different areas and then a bunch of different tones. I imagine. And with 100 people, that's still not a lot of people to cover the whole world with. What does the international focused team look like or the localization team look like today? Yeah, this is something we're, we're really leaning into right now. It's funny. I actually put a call for help out on LinkedIn yesterday. I was like, hey, LinkedIn friends. How do you guys do it? Because I don't think that there's one playbook and that I've definitely come to realize every company does it differently, right? And so what I'm trying to do is just synthesize all the different ways people are doing it and figure out what works for us. I think one of the core questions is around centralized versus decentralized teams. Mm-hmm. Right now, pre-COVID, I should say, we were very centralized. We had a very strong office culture, point of pride. We have a sick office in San Francisco. And, you know, it, and it was fun. It was like a fun vibe, kind of what you'd expect, right? And then obviously COVID hit and we were doing all this insane growth and hiring. And it wouldn't matter if you were down the street from me at this point, you know, I'm going to interview you via Zoom and you're going to onboard remotely. And so we really embraced remote first. And that was a big like cultural shift. And there's a lot of challenges with that. That's probably a subject for another podcast another time. <laughs> but you know, so we, we're probably over 50% remote at this point. But one thing we have done again is like when we're hiring a new customer support agent. For example, like really focusing on 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 bilingual or multilingual people, mm-hmm. and so we're trying to, you know, one uh, one of the un- unintended consequences of layering in those extra three languages in 2019, French, German, and Spanish, was the cardinality that it introduces throughout the org. It wasn't just like a one-time stand-up thing. We're going to invest these six months to do it, or even the ongoing customer support. Like it impacts QA. It impacts marketing, it impacts customer support, it impacts product development. It permeates throughout. It's just like one extra unit of work for all three of those. Like each language presents its own set of challenges. German, I mean, it's like on average, like 40% longer or even more characters per word, something like mm-hmm. that. The amount of Chrome that it broke throughout the platform and let alone right to left languages 
or Japanese or Korean or things like that, you know? And so we're still trying to optimize our processes to support four languages, but it's, we know it's not enough, you know, and we want to get, we want to have a billion people on our platform. That's the goal within the next 10 years. And so we need to support more languages, but how do we do it in a way that doesn't slow down core product development? And that's what I'm trying to solve right now. And really trying to think through like, is it language managers? Is it country managers? What is the leverage in opening up a European office? And even within that, like Europe is big, right? Is it one centralized office? Is it in Berlin? Is it in London? Is it in Dublin? Right? Like, where do you even do it? And then what's the why behind it? And then how do you prevent fiefdoms from opening up and people like fighting for resources and what should live over there? You know, do we need a fully staffed engineering team over there, right? Like it's 24-7, follow the sun. What do you gain? What do you lose? Marketing, like, okay, I get, you know, on the one hand, like localization, no boots on the ground, understanding of that market for onboarding, for example, let's say, you know, onboarding in Germany might be very different than onboarding in the United States. So if you put a marketing team in Europe, well, how do they coexist? And we don't bash each other. So many pros and cons. And I think that's why there's no one single playbook here. And I'm talking about like really interesting companies, you know, like a lot of big companies that you and your, your listeners probably know. And, and again, like no one has the really firm point of view on this, pound the table, like this is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that again, it's, it's just kind of this series of trade-offs that you have to make and kind of just weigh out which one makes the most sense. No, that's absolutely right. And that's part of why the podcast, right? Because there is not a single answer. It's different for every company. But I think you net out over time, maybe some mentality or some approaches to take to the problem, but not any specific answers that will fit all for sure. You mentioned that when you went into translating into French, German, Spanish, that was you recognize that was an ongoing commitment. It wasn't like a one-time project. It wasn't something that you were you know, done and been there, done that. You're taking that on from now to the future. So as you think about that, what are the other types of decisions, even if you haven't answered them yet, but the decisions you're struggling with because you know that if you once you make them, you can't close that door? I think that's exactly it. It's once you commit to that incremental language or set of languages, you are on the hook from then on out. And so One of the things we're trying to do is first optimize our processes given the existing four language before we tack on more. Because of the inefficiencies right now, I think the unintended consequence of layering in the next batch of languages would be to slow down core product development across all markets. And we can't have that. Again, like you've heard me say multiple, I'm a momentum guy. Like this is how we win is by just being fast and and outpacing everyone else. And so first trying to like optimize the core processes given what we have. And really figure out how to offload the pain points from product and eng, because that's where, at least for us, for all trails, it feels the most acute. You know, like customer support agents are the unsung heroes of every company, first of all, but it's relatively easy to just layer in more agents. Even just thinking we can centralize them, we can find any language, we can find them in the United States. You know, mm-hmm. like that's the great thing about the workforce here, right? Like we can find those people. Marketing gets a little bit tricky. So like, how do we not... Again, just trying to think through like all of the externalities and wh- how it impacts each team and department differently. So marketing is one I've been, I've been thinking a lot about like onboarding. We're trying to move fast. We're you know, testing so much, with, so much opportunity with lifecycle marketing. But 
if we need to expand it to another set of languages, it will slow down. So how do we are the actual like marketers responsible for it? Or is there like a language lead that can manage it? I don't want this to come across the wrong way. Like it's relatively easier to QA French, German, and Spanish, because at least we recognize the letters. But when we get mm-hmm. into languages that we're not as familiar with, you know, again, something like Japanese or Korean, it's that much harder to just like visualize like this is good, this is not good. Yep. You know, so really trying to think through what is the like highest efficiency hires, you know, the minimum amount and the highest leverage hires that we can put in place to distribute that workload off of the core teams that just need to build globally, those centralized teams. I don't know the answer yet, but that's what we're trying to solve and then scale to more languages. Well, thanks for being so open with the things, the questions that you guys are struggling through. And I feel like a lot of people, if they're honest, realize that they have more questions than they do have answers as they go along. Because it's if it were solved, we wouldn't have this podcast or this discussion. <laughs> but I, I imagine that along the way, you guys have figured out some things, you know, especially around international, how to do certain things right. And you're starting to build, at least in your own context, a bit of a playbook or best practice list. What are some of those things that come to mind now that you have made acquisitions in other countries, you've taken on team members from other places. What are the things you've learned that you would recommend if someone was a little bit behind you and about to go through some of the same steps you've now gone through? Yeah, I I think I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think momentum and velocity. And so doing the things that, that scale. One debate every company goes through this, which is like the one-off product development that needs to take place to support a country. And then you think about the cardinality for that. Like we're going to have a different onboarding or like a different feature set in France versus Germany versus Japan versus Latin America. Like how do we support that? That won't work. That doesn't work for us, right? So we need to keep thinking centralized, but global, you know? So if we're going to add something in for a specific market, making sure that it's additive across the board. And so... Like we can't balkanize the product. We can't do that. But to be clear, we also we don't have a constellation of apps. We have one platform. It's just all trails, right? We don't have a bunch of different products out there for each market. You know, some companies do that and then they really can specialize, but that's not how we operate. Mm-hmm. I think the question of acquisitions is always an interesting one. You know, is it an accelerant or not? And I think that just comes down to the investment thesis behind the actual acquisition itself. There's like a Venn diagram that everyone probably has that's unique for their business. You know, for us, it's always like user acquisition, SEO, trail content, you know, maybe technology, you know, a couple other things, right? But what we learn, honestly, like one, we're not short on trail content. The raw materials we have from the UGC, which again, we very intentionally build up, we're good. So we like that eliminates that part of that Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. SEO is always interesting. It's always interesting. You know, for, for the four acquisitions we've done, absorb the content, 301 redirect, like it's a boost, but there's also an opportunity cost trade-off there. And whether again, like by focusing on our own trail creation and technical SEO, which I think is one of our strengths, like, can we do the same thing? And then the third is user acquisition. For us, well, I definitely I've definitely come to appreciate that if you're buying a company to buy their users, it is not an efficient use of proceeds, right? Like no <laughs> user anywhere is stoked to get that letter. Hey, great news. This platform that you love is now bought by this American company, right? Like uh-huh. there was when we bought GPSs, they're like, I mean, Eastern Europeans can be mean, right? And so like this one woman wrote in, she's like, I hope your eyes bleed. 
It's like, oh my goodness, that's so mean. That's the meanest thing anyone has ever said <laughs> to me, you know? And it's like, really, people were like really genuinely furious that we had bought this, you know, this platform. And it was a tiny platform, but the people who were on it were so passionate. Mm-hmm. So I would say if you do an acquisition, one of the key, and you're going to roll it into your platform, make sure that there's feature parity, like 100% feature parity. Because if there's not, people feel like it's a downgrade. And then they tell you, you know, they want your eyes to start bleeding, right? Like, so like some, you know, some little things like that. And so I don't know, like everyone makes mistakes, right? Like there's no playbook. If this was easy, everyone would do it. So, you know, you embrace the mistakes, like, cool. Like next time, if, when we ever buy a company again, we will 100% make sure that we're willing to bring all of those features on board and then not make the announcement until we have done that. Right. So there's some things there figuring out like paid acquisition is really interesting. You know, it changes by market whether it's ad creative, whether it's targeting, it's different. You can always partner with agencies to help you with that or just ruthlessly test variants and stuff. Nothing that's not solvable. But it's really thinking about that go-to-market strategy and and sort of like, you know, through the lens of localization, resonating and product market fit out there. Uh, But again, like there's no obvious playbook for any of this. It's hard. It is hard. You are starting, you know, you're going from zero to one, basically, like over and over and over under this assumption that the things that people in your core market love about you will translate into these other ones. And there's some markets, you know, we're, so we're going forward in probably 12 countries right now across Europe and outside of the US, right? Like there are 12 areas of focus. Mm-hmm. Some of the countries are bigger, you know, higher GP, whatever. And some, then there's like the secondary and tertiary ones. And some of the, you know, countries that are even like bordering each other, you know, we can make tremendous progress. Like, oh my God, like we are a rocket ship in this country. And the one right next door is like, we cannot crack this and why, mm-hmm. right? It's like, what is it that big of a cultural difference between two countries right next to each other, like in Europe? So again, like it's a lot and it's hard and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to bang your head against the wall. Sometimes you have to retreat, right? And then try and <laughs> retrench somewhere else. And who do you assign to figure out the answer to trust problems like that? You have two countries next to each other. One of them's taking off, one of them isn't. Whose job is it to go figure out why that is? And how do you structure? Yeah, this is the other big area of discussion internally. You know, as we're trying to figure out like what are the high leverage hires we need to do? Also, like what's the chain of command? Like who owns what? And what we realized last year. So again, full transparency. You know, in 2020, a lot of our European strategy was just as a follow-on to the United States. All right, we're gonna do a spring promo here. We'll just do it in Europe. You know, all of the trails are adding, cool, the SEO is global, whatever. It didn't work, you know, like it was making steady forward progress, but not at the rate that we were satisfied with. We wanted four or five hundred percent year-on-year growth kind of stuff. Like we want speed. It's not like a real market, like velocity and momentum. Like it needs to go fast. It's got, if if this is a winner take all market, we got to move fast. Mm -hmm. And so this year, being intellectually honest with ourselves, and that wasn't working. How do we do this better? And there was this realization we need one person that, you know, the executive team can hold accountable, right? That's going to eat, breathe, sleep the metrics and like specifically be able to answer those questions. Like, why is Spain popping? Why is Italy dragging? Mm-hmm. Is it product related? Is it translation? Is it localization? Is it feature set? Is it just go to market? Is it an entrenched competitor? It's really hard. And so like, as of now, as of today, we kind of have one international strategy manager and they are the hub, right? They are the cross-functional hub. It's a person without a team, but their job is to, again, be that communication hub, communicate up to the executive so we know what's going on at any given time where we need to redeploy resources, 
as we collaborate and strategize together, take that strategy and again, apply it cross-functionally, make sure everyone is aligned. That's been an interesting growing pain too. Just going from 28 people at the start of 2020 to almost 100 people today is like, and being remote, how do you have that solid cross-functional communication and alignment? Like again, probably a whole discussion for another podcast, but at least like by having that accountable person, I have someone I can just slack and be like, what's going on? That's been fantastic. And now what we need to figure out is like, do we grow the team under her? Where exactly in the org does it live? You know, and how do the other orgs like like solid line or dotted line interact? We will figure that out over the next few months. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, especially given your background and growth, where you think the international overlay should live. Is it a horizontal thing that happens? Is it a dedicated team that kind of lives independently? Is it part of the growth team? Um, or somewhere else. I have no idea. I was kind of hoping you'd tell me by the end of this one. I have no idea. I, I really don't. And so much that, you know, again, like I'll tell you this one thing I've definitely come to appreciate in over 20 years in the game now, no one has their shit together. There is not a single company out there that has their shit together and has it all figured out. And anyone that like tries to project themselves is lying. And so for us, like we embrace, I have no problem telling you and your millions of listeners, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. But I don't think that that's a bad thing, right? And I think like, when, and I'm very transparent, again, to you and a bunch of listeners I've never met before, but also within my company as well, though, and not knowing the answers, but like, here's how we're going to systematically figure this out, right? And then like, mm-hmm. start to put in place hypotheses, alignment, how are we going to measure success? How are we going to iterate, like fail fast? And you just kind of go, you just move, move fast. And I think that's probably the part that you guys do particularly well is that setting up the right... KPIs and being able to recognize quickly, even if you see 250% growth, that that's not good enough. So I'd love to know, how do you think about that? When you're, say you're going to launch or go into a new region and you have some history of how fast other markets that might seem similar have grown, but what's your approach to setting up a kind of uh, KPI testbed or dashboard and knowing, you know, even if something is up and to the right, is it up and to the right far enough? Yeah, totally. I think now that we've been at this for a few years in a bunch of different markets, having those benchmarks is really valuable, right? So even being able to compare United States growth, you know, one way we're looking at is like our first million users and then our second million users, right? our next million users, like the speed from one to two. And we chart mm-hmm. that out and we compare, you know, US, Canada, UK, Australia, where, you know, again, we started with the English speaking countries first versus France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Belgium, Netherlands, Israel, South Africa, everything else, right? And so like plotting the rate of growth and seeing like which ones are outperforming, okay, like that's a signal. That's that's a signal that is very apparent to us, right? The rate of growth is a really great one. And so then we can dedicate more re- and then it's the question what levers can you pull to accelerate that further or resources to redeploy because it is ultimately a zero sum game also. And then at the same time like this market is lagging. How and and I don't know the answer to this, right? But we're we're living this right now. We're kind of giving ourselves through this summer to figure it out. But like, how long until we say we give up, you know, mm-hmm. and and we're just throwing money away, you know? Because it, it comes down to again, like I said, or like levers, you know. And one of the big levers that will for anyone is going to be paid acquisition. Like, there's always going to be some kind of investment to for go to market and product channel fit and stuff. Especially until our flywheel gets going, and so. Is this a wise investment or are we throwing money away? And I think every entrepreneur struggles with this is like, am I being stubborn or am I being prescient? And this will like eventually tip. And it's tough. It's tough to calibrate that, right? 
yeah, when to give up and when to persist. Yeah. At the same time. So then we try and augment it. One of the things we're trying to get better with, and we're investing a lot of energy on is, is supplementing our quantitative data with more qualitative data and really like talking to users more, which helps now that we have a more multilingual team, but straight up doing like Zoom sessions with users, jumping into different Facebook groups, just really like get that qualitative feedback so we can really understand the nuances of the market and then how they perceive us. And really trying to think through like where the areas of friction are. Are they surmountable? Are they insurmountable? Because the other thing too is if you do retreat, but you have your eye on that country, it's just going to be that much harder next year. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's the other thing is like, are we really willing to like fully walk away from this one or not? Yeah. And I, that's what I'm learning a lot from you during this conversation is you guys have an incredible amount of leverage with a team of 100 people, you got to cover the globe. So you've got to figure out how to scale. But it seems like you do an incredibly rigorous job of processing the qualitative information that's giving you the signals of you know whether to change, pivot, or persist. So I'm, I'm definitely learning a lot from what you're telling me about that. Ron, I have some just kind of quick questions to kind of wrap up with. I'd love to talk about this for hours and hours. But the first question I have for you is... You know, you're focused on helping people get out there and see more of the world and kind of for the last year and a half or so to beat the pandemic. But what are the values? Like, what are the things that you tell a new employee? You mentioned that you have to find people that are in it for the right reasons and are mission driven. But what's that message that you put out to someone you're interviewing or the things that you want to hear so you know it's a fit? Yeah. One of the things that I'm really proud of is when people come to work at Altrails, they don't quit. I think in the almost six years I've been there, I think four people have left. And I think it's because we over-index on the interview process and really find people who want to be here for the right reason. They're not like a tech mercenary looking for a quick payout. They can be the most talented developer in the world. But again, if they're here for the wrong reasons, it's not going to work. And that continuity, like it builds this connective tissue, right? Which like it increases our muscle mass. We're just, we're stronger. We know each other better. Like it's like, you know, like when you play sports with the same people for a while, like you just get better together. So I think it's really, you know, and the other big thing too, again, and I think what is unique to all trails is we don't believe there's any one right way to enjoy the outdoors. And so it's not through this lens of like, you know, how badass are you, dude? Are you, you know, yeah. like that's not us, right? So like, it doesn't matter whether someone is, you know, really big on off-road driving or backpacking or mountain biking, or just wants to find like dog-friendly trails or like, mm-hmm kid-friendly trip. Like, it's all good. It's all good. But they, if they have that personal connection, I do love asking them about like, well, you know, what, what's your favorite trail? Like, what's your favorite park that you've been to? How can you guys get outside? You know, and it's fun. You can see the passion shine through. And it's just one of those ways that, again, like, it's not like a specific set question or anything, but if that passion is there, that dedication, of the, it's, it's almost like a belief. There's this fundamental belief within all trails that like, the world is just a slightly better place when people spend more time outside. Like people are happier, they're less stressed, we're more connected to each other, we slow down, mm-hmm. we're present. You just feel better when you're outside. And so for people who recognize that and that's a part of their identity, they're gonna be so excited to use their powers and their gifts to spread that stoke globally and can keep reawakening people to just all of the awesomeness of, of spending time outside. And then what you get is like this really like intrinsic motivation within these people to just go above and beyond because they're not doing it for a paycheck or they're not doing it because they're scared of their boss or for they're doing it because they believe, you know, because they know personally how much being outside impacts their lives for the better. So cool. 
One more quick one. So I usually ask people, you know, what their favorite hotel is or their favorite place to travel since this is internationally themed. But I want to know two questions from you. What's your favorite trail? And what's the most exciting international trail you've been on? I love it. If I had to pick one all-time favorite trail, it's the Nepali Coast Trail in Kauai. I've been able to do it twice. And they were both at like crossroads in my life. And so it has like a really special place where I went there. I went to college for four and a half years. So right before the, my second senior year, I, I got out there. I did a solo backpacking trip. And it was really like, who am I? Who do I want to be? Like, what do I want my life to be about? You know, it's one of those really like hardcore introspective trips. And I got so much out of that. And then after Liftopia, after almost nine years at Liftopia, when I'm at this crossroads, it's like, like, who am I? It was actually my wife's idea. She's like, you should go back to the Nepali Coast Trail. I was like, oh my God, I love you. This is, you're the best person I know. And I did. I spent a week out there by myself and just the same kind of thing. Like, what is this all about? Who do I want to be? How do I want to spend my time, my energy? So it's like, a, it's a really special place for me. And yeah, I, anyone who gets a chance to do it, you know, I can't recommend it enough. Very cool. So, and then International Trail, that was the, the second part. Yeah, yeah. I haven't done as much like backpacking internationally on the trail as I'd like to. I would love to do Nepal, like do some like really like high elevation stuff out there. I think that would be magical, like the hut to hut stuff and just like eat at local villages. That's a bucket list thing. I hope one day I'll get to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know I'm going to spend a couple of hours this weekend sort of wanderlust uh, looking at trails that I want to do in the future. But Ron, thank you so much. This has been fascinating and I've learned a lot. And I also appreciate how open you are about not only the things you figured out, but the questions you're wrestling with, because I agree. I don't think that anybody has a lot of the, the right answers, especially for another company in these areas. But I think the more honest you are about the things that you're dealing with, you're going to get to the answer faster. So thanks you so much. And Ron, if people want to learn more about you, where should they look? I guess LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm not on social media. It's a point of pride. I hate social media, but I'm on LinkedIn. So you can find me there or just go on all trails. You'll find me on there too. Awesome. I will definitely look you up. Ron, thanks so much. Thank you, Ramsey. This was fun. Thanks again for listening to the International Expansion Podcast. If you found this information helpful, I hope you'll subscribe and share this info with a friend or colleague. As a reminder, if you or your company is looking for guidance on your international expansion journey, from sizing and prioritizing markets to getting up to speed on local conditions, finding world-class talent, or building up your brand and revenue, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. Until next time, take care.